tonight we're going to finish the study of the Ten Commandments, or as I like to think of it, just a little trip down Conviction Lane, because <laughs> that's what it's been for me. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come before you in prayer with uh, hearts and minds focused on the way in which you serve us through prayer, the way in which you honor your word through prayer, the way in which you uh, provide, care for, and direct us through prayer. And we thank you, Father, for the chance to couple that with a study of your word. Your house, Father, is to be a house of prayer, and as we are the temple today for you in which you dwell on earth, we ask, Father, that our temples would all be directed toward prayer and in the study of your word at all times and in all that we do and say that we would reflect who you are by how we live and and in these two ways especially, Father. Thank you for the grace that it is to study your word and to understand it by the Spirit, to be a part of a group like this that cares to study it. Thank you for the chance, Father, to share it with others. Let us be a witness, not just in our words, but also in the way we live according to what we learn. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we dive back in, as I said, to the Ten Commandments. We're spending more time on these laws than we will on later laws in the book of Exodus. But we said we're doing that because the Ten Commandments warrant the extra attention. And we want to understand each commandment, what it was meant in the time it was given to Israel in the covenant, how they were bound by it. And then secondly, we're spending time with each commandment to understand how the law of Christ, which is the law we live under now, as you know, how that law incorporates and expands upon all that we're finding in this law. So far, we've covered six of the ten. Last week, we looked at taking the Lord's name in vain, the Sabbath, honoring parents, murder. And in each case, we considered how the Lord had expanded the intent of the law to encompass in our new law the full intent, the full purpose of these earlier laws. So, for example, we said speaking in vain as it was described in the old law, now in the new law we have under Christ includes all forms of harmful speech. And whereas the old law said honor your parents, we now know that the new law includes on top of that honoring your church family and honoring your leaders and elders. Murder in the Old Testament has become more than that. Now it incorporates hateful thought and malice and so on. So I could teach for a month of Sundays on each of these commandments And so it's inevitably the case that there are topics within each one that I am not covering for the sake of time and the sake of necessity. But I want to mention just in passing that you are welcome to submit your questions on the website. I've already seen this and it's been encouraging that there are questions on the material. Uh, Some of those questions have been really good ones, things I should have addressed here. But as I said, I can't get everything done. So we're answering them and putting that on the website or on Facebook. So if you have an interest in following up, please do with your questions. Tonight, we're going to cover the final four commandments. So we pick up in verse 14 with the next commandment. And we've read the entire passage once, but we're going back through it again, reading each law in part. So verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. First, let's define the word adultery as it was commonly understood in Israel. Adultery under the law of Moses is sexual intercourse when one or both partners are married and not to each other. Under Jewish law, to be betrothed was equal to being married. So sexual relations with someone who was betrothed to another would also be considered 
adultery. And if you may remember from the New Testament, the story of Mary and Joseph, that was essentially the problem Joseph was facing, or so he thought. Here's a woman who had been betrothed to him, but they had not yet entered into the consummation of marriage. They were in that state between betrothal, or we might use the term engagement, but it's not the same because a betrothal was a legal marriage. The only way to get out of a betrothal was a divorce. So a betrothal was the beginning of marriage. The marriage night was the consummation of marriage, and those two things could be separated by a year or more. But in between that time, if one of the two cheats on the other, it's adultery. And as I said, if one wanted to leave the marriage, it would have to be through a divorce. That's why when you see Joseph learn of Mary's condition, his first thought was take her away secretly. And as Matthew says, divorce her. But we know he had not yet had relations with her because they were in this in-between period. Then he got the angel come and say, let me give you the full story. And he he went a different direction, thankfully. But the purpose of this law in Israel might seem obvious. And for the most part, maybe it is. But there's a twofold purpose behind it. First, the sanctity of marriage was to be honored and preserved. Once a commitment is made to one person in marriage, that commitment must be honored according to this law. Consider that among the first ten laws of the 613 that are in the law of Moses, three of those first ten address the strength and the sanctity of family. So you have honoring your parents as one, honoring your spouse in the sense of adultery is another, and then later we're going to have coveting as an issue, honoring other marriages, in other words, So the point is, be married, don't fool around, and leave other people's marriages alone. (laughs) So clearly, maintaining the health of the family was a priority for the Lord. Secondly, and this is the second purpose behind this law, God had appointed Israel to be a people called out from the world, and the people of Israel must be protecting the family line that God has created in that nation. They must preserve it and protect it. If a marriage were not sacrosanct, in the society of Israel, then the bloodlines of Israel would be at risk, potentially. More importantly, the seed promise, which Israel alone carried until the Messiah came, that promise could be corrupted. And certainly the enemy worked at times to make that happen through the pagan cultures that lived around Israel. God promised that through Abraham's seed would come the Messiah. And for generations thereafter, Israel knew to look for a seed to come in fulfillment of that promise, the Messiah. And so it was absolutely essential that the seed line remain pure and uncompromised by infidelity. And in that way, the promise could be verified. Men would know that Jesus fulfilled all the requirements to be Messiah, for he was of Judah, descended from David, and so on. So those are two reasons why God has this law for Israel. It's also important, though, to note what adultery is not. It is not, first of all, a state of being. It is a sexual act. The offense of adultery happens in a moment. Afterward, that person might be labeled an adulterer in the same way that we might call someone a murderer because of a prior act of murder. But... Just like that murderer is not continuously guilty of murder or continuously murdering, neither is an adulterer continuously an adulterer. It's an act, not a state of being. So they are not continuing in adultery unless they continue in the sexual act that is the definition of adultery. Secondly, sexual conduct outside of marriage is not adultery. And another word for that in the Bible is fornication. One of the ways you know that these are not the same is that adultery was punishable by death 
under the Mosaic law. But fornication is a different crime and it carried a very different penalty under the law. In fact, we'll study this in a couple chapters. In Exodus 22, we're going to learn that the penalty involves restitution to the father and a requirement to marry if the father permits. So while the law prohibited adultery and also fornication, it sees them as different acts. So you cannot commit adultery unless one or the other partner in that act is married. While the law promoted the sanctity of marriage, the law also seemed to make provision for divorce. Now, that provision is in Deuteronomy 24. And I'm going to address this issue for just a moment on the nature of divorce and its relationship to marriage and how adultery fits in, because that is such a misunderstood topic in the church. And because if we're going to understand what God's intent was here and then look into the New Testament law of Christ, we need to get all our terms straight. We need to get all of the concepts straight. So in the law, Deuteronomy 24, this is what you hear. Verse one. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, Then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which your Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So let's think about this for a minute. The law describes a man sending his wife away with a certificate of divorce. With that certificate of divorce in hand, the woman now has the legal option, the legal ability to remarry. Because without such a certificate, a married woman in Israel would never find a man willing to enter into marriage with her because he would suffer the penalty of death for adultery. And another thing to understand in this culture was a woman couldn't divorce a man. Only a man could initiate divorce. A woman had no option as such. So if a man found the woman unacceptable, he could put her out and give her a certificate of divorce, which at least enabled her to remarry. Notice also that the law forbids that woman from returning to her first husband, even if her second husband dies. The reason given is because we're told she has been defiled. Now, that is our first clue to determine that God does not see divorce as the clean break that we may think it is. And then I go to Jeremiah 3, verse 1, and you see God drawing a lesson from Deuteronomy 24, When he passes judgment on Israel, and here's what he says. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers, speaking to Israel, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. You get what he's saying to Israel? The Lord draws from the law here to make a spiritual point to an unfaithful Israel. The Lord calls himself a husband to Israel in the scripture quite commonly. He also calls Israel his wife in scripture. But the nation we know was unfaithful to the Lord in the sense that they went after pagan idols and idolatry. So in a sense, they cheated, spiritually speaking. They committed adultery. And as they entered into these adulterous relationships, the Lord responded by judging Israel. And in the case of the ten northern tribes, which is who Jeremiah is talking about here. 
He sent them into exile. In a sense, he sent them out of his house, like a man might do to a wife. And here in this passage in Jeremiah, the Lord warns the nation that when they go on this exile, they're going to call on him. They're going to have regret and they're going to call the Lord and they're going to say, come back to me. And the Lord says, well, what does your own law say? The law I gave you. Doesn't the law say that if a man puts a woman out and she marries another, she can't come back to the first husband? His point is, I'm not going to take you back, not in the way you want me to, because you've been defiled through an adulterous relationship. And so I am going to leave you outside my care for a time. And we know that the law literally prohibited God from taking them back. We can study more about how God does bring Israel back to himself in keeping with the law in the Revelation study. If you weren't here for it, we covered it there. So now, turning to the New Testament and the law of Christ and how it guides us. Let's take what we just learned. It's sort of a building block process. There's some building blocks there we can draw from. Now, let's see how this law then moves forward to the believer today and how it's expanded. First, Jesus spoke these words concerning the matter of adultery. Matthew 5:26. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus broadens the law here, just as he has done in the previous cases with the earlier commandments, right? He took what was given and he demonstrates that its intent was always broader than the mere words that were used in the law, that this is not something new. This is elaborating on what was always meant to be in the law, just as the prohibition against unlawful killing was broadened to include hateful thoughts. Now, adultery is broadened to include even lustful desires. Now, Jesus is not saying that a lustful desire is adultery, that if I have a lustful thought, I've suddenly committed adultery against my wife. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that they are the moral equivalent under God's law. You and I may never have committed adultery in fact, but if you have entertained lustful thoughts, then you are no less guilty before God than the person who did act on their lust. You can't walk around saying, because you had a lustful thought, that makes you an adulterer. That's not the point of the message. But it's a minimal difference. The issue is, with respect to your relationship with God, you still have a debt there. Now, our modern world is desperately trying to create lustful thoughts in your head at every turn. Advertisers seek your attention with sexy models. Entertainers, celebrities provoke lust for attention and for profit. Young teens seek approval and acceptance and love by dressing provocatively. Websites, books, music, movies, they all push the limits. Actually, they throw away the limits to sell lust to an eager audience. Did you see the Super Bowl halftime? <laughs> Woo! So everywhere you look, right, the world is ready to provoke lust in your heart. And on the authority of Scripture, Jesus says, as they succeed, they prompt in us a sin equal to adultery. How often we will congratulate ourselves for our strength in the face of temptations and our loyalty to our spouse. And yet, from Jesus' point of view, we're not nearly as good as we think we are. The upward call of Christ demands that we would not fall for temptation any more easily than we would commit adultery. Some of us may fall to both, but most of us treat one very differently from the other, leaving us far more willing to entertain lust than adultery. And it ought not be that way. Now, if that weren't challenging enough, 
Jesus goes even further in defining what is adultery. In Mark, chapter 10, 2 through 12, he has this confrontation with the Pharisees and his disciples follow up with a question. So Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and he said to them, well, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said again, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, that's a challenging passage, right? Now, let's break that down. Jesus declares that when we dissolve a marriage through divorce and enter into new marriages, we commit adultery. From God's point of view, new marriages pile up on top of old marriages. And therefore, the sexual union that forms in that new marriage is adultery. Again, it's an act. It's not a state of being. That new marriage is not a continual act of adultery. It is founded, though, on a sinful basis. The Pharisees challenged Jesus on this interpretation, as some of us might be prone to do, by reminding him that the law of Moses included a provision for a certificate of divorce. That's what we looked at a few minutes ago, right? But Jesus sets the Pharisees straight concerning how they should have understood that earlier provision. First, he returns to the origins and the definition of marriage itself. He says marriage is a union of two into a single flesh. Once that has been created, no man can separate it. No priest, no judge, no man. So the law of Moses could not have changed that reality coming after the creation of marriage. If the creation of marriage was defined by God in the sixth day, then a law that came to Moses thousands of years later can't change what came before it. That's Jesus' first point. Secondly, even in the law itself, we see no evidence that God permitted divorce. None. There is no law that actually authorizes a certificate of divorce. None. Even the provision that's included here is not licensed to divorce. The law we read in Deuteronomy 24 never gives permission for that certificate. It simply sets rules for what happens to a wife after a husband chooses to give her a certificate. The origins of the certificate are man-made, not godly. It's dealing with the aftermath of divorce. It's not encouraging it, certainly. It's not even permitting it. It didn't even define it. It acknowledges it and then addresses the aftermath of it. The law says that a woman who's married can't return to her first husband after she's remarried because she's been defiled. If God considered a remarried woman to be defiled by that marriage, then clearly a certificate of divorce did not permit remarriage. If she's considered defiled because she remarries, even though she had this certificate, then clearly the certificate didn't stop the defiling. The defiling is adultery. That's the problem. Why then did God incorporate a provision talking about how things should go for that woman after such an event to address the hardness of men's hearts? The Lord knew that sinful men are going to divorce their wives without his permission, would have set the women out of the house with nothing. They would have divorced them, in other words, without a piece of paper. And without that piece of paper, this woman could never remarry. She could not work. 
She would not probably own any land or have any possessions. She would starve to death. Because of the hardness of men's hearts, women would be put into those situations. So Jesus, he says, because of the hardness of your heart, there's a provision for how certificates of divorce could be used to help women find someone to take care of them after a divorce. He has made provision for women in the case of sinful men doing the wrong thing. There's grace in that. But don't misunderstand it. There's a defilement and an adultery taking place in the establishment of that new marriage. So by that acknowledgement, the Lord ensures that men would give their ex-wives proof so they could find new support, but that still involves adulterous relationship. Furthermore, the law of Christ demands patience, love, and understanding from both the man and the woman so that marriages would be strong. There's very little in the Old Testament law offered in the way of marriage counseling. But the New Testament is replete with it. Because the intent of the New Testament law is that both husbands and wives act in ways that will hold their marriages together and not see divorce as a solution and not expect that the next marriage will necessarily be a better solution and not overlook the fact that they are committing adultery when they choose the second path. Finally, one last point. Our relationship with Christ is pictured by marriage in Scripture. He's called our groom. The church is called the bride of Christ. Our union is understood to be a betrothal right now while we wait for the moment when we meet our groom and our marriage is, so to speak, consummated spiritually. So if God chose to borrow imagery from human marriage to help us understand our relationship with Christ, then that tells you how indivisible the marriage covenant must be in reality. Why would God choose a marriage covenant as the picture of our relationship with him if marriage covenants can be dissolved on a whim? It wouldn't give us much faith and assurance that our relationship with Christ is permanent, would it? And if you say, well, I know there's somewhere in the Bible that it says if somebody's cheated on you, you can leave them. Have you cheated on Christ? Spiritually speaking, have we not cheated on Christ in some fashion somewhere down the road? Have we not had a bad day when we did something unfaithful to him in some sense? So if infidelity was cause for dissolving of a marriage covenant, if that were true, then wouldn't Christ walk away from each of us at some point? You see, the problem with our limited understanding of marriage from a non-biblical point of view is we not only do violence to marriage, we do violence to the theology of our covenant with Christ. We've often been taught, I know because I've been taught, that there are exceptions in Scripture. There's an article on our website that we spend a fair amount of time on getting right, we think, which addresses every one of those supposed exceptions and lays out why they are man-made precepts, not the doctrines of Scripture. Though I'm sure there are many who would disagree with me and probably have their reasons. I can tell you that if you can come with an exception to the marriage covenant, you do violence to the theology of the new covenant. You ignore the teaching of Jesus when he says it is always adultery to remarry. And you miss the point in some of those cases of exceptions. The law of Christ raises the bar on this seventh commandment for every Christian. Save yourself for marriage. And once you marry See the marriage the way the Lord sees it. You are married until death do you part. Work on your marriage. Make its preservation your highest goal. See it as your witness to the world of your relationship with Christ. Protect it, knowing that as you honor your spouse and your marriage, you reflect your faith. Should one member of a marriage give up and leave or file for legal divorce, remember, both are still married in God's eyes. Therefore, if you have been left, remain single forevermore, hoping your spouse reconsiders and returns. 
If one or the other remarries, they commit adultery. If you have remarried, stay married. Adultery is not a state of being. It's an act. You can't fix the past by committing a new sin in the future. Just as the law prevented men from taking a wife back who had remarried, so we are not to repeat our mistakes either. So stay with the one you're married to. Honor that marriage. If it was formed under less than ideal circumstances, grace covers all sin. It is, I think, an unfortunate tendency in the church to see some sins in a different category than others. And particularly in the sense that they see it more as a state of being instead of a single act. We should never do that to anyone. We need to understand that they are no less cleansed than we are from our sin. And all we're looking at in that person's life is the remnant of a sin. Just like we all have remnants of sin. So we don't want to leave them thinking they are somehow in a different category. They are not. We are all in this together. We all have more sin than we know what to do with. And God has covered it all. So let's go to an easier one. 2015. (laughs) You shall not steal, he says. Now, the very fact that God's law forbids taking another's property teaches us something about God's economic point of view. He is not a communist. He believes in private property ownership rights. A man can possess property and he can expect that he might never be denied access to it, not in an unlawful way. And as we're going to study more later, a considerable chunk of the law is dedicated to rules around respect for private property. We'll cover all that as we go through it. But the law expands private property law considerably. In fact, it is the basis for tort law today and for how property crimes are adjudicated in common law today. If you deprive somebody of something, you have an obligation to return it or to compensate them for it. Our modern law is based on God's law, and it becomes self-evident when you see things like this reflected in God's law. These common accepted principles of, of Western law that we take for granted find their origin in the law of God. So how did Jesus carry over this law and expand it for believers? Because the basis of it for Israel is very simple. It's exactly what it says. Don't take something that's not yours. But how did Jesus carry this over and how did he expand it? Well, first, he restates it plainly. The Gospels and the New Testament epistle writers say it multiple times. Just as an example, Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must steal no longer, Paul says, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. But then secondly, the sin of stealing is also equated with greedy gain. It's also associated with fraud, dishonest business dealings, slothful dependence on others. All of these are held to the same level as stealing by the New Testament writers. For example, Jesus says in Luke 12:15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In fact, Paul says greed can lead to idolatry in Colossians 3.5. And he denounces sordid gain in 1 Timothy 3.8. So in other words, the purpose of the Eighth Commandment was not merely to prohibit the active taking of something that is in someone else's possession. That's the simplest form of stealing, right? But it was intended to put an end to any action that might enrich us, enrich ourselves in an unloving way at someone else's expense. So whether we trick someone into spending too much on something or we scheme in business or we conduct shady business dealings or we misuse our employer's time or we misrepresent our goods for sale or any number of a hundred other ways we can defraud 
or scheme, etc. All of those things are covered under this law. Remember, even forms of business that may be considered legal, according to our nation's laws, can still violate the standards of this New Testament law of Christ. So just like the laws of our nation, for example, do permit divorce and remarriage, but we know Jesus says that's adultery. Similarly, the laws of our nation may permit some business practices that Jesus has taught are actually sinful acts of stealing because they take advantage of others in a way that's not loving. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6-7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. How does greed qualify as a form of stealing in the broader definition? Well, consider that the Lord is the owner of all that the earth contains. And Scripture teaches that the Lord has assigned to each according to His will. So, when we allow greedy hearts to rule over us and drive us to seek after things the Lord has not assigned for us, we are stealing from the Lord, in a sense. We're taking for ourselves something that the Lord, the owner of all things, has not given into our hands. If you want the best possible perspective on this question, you only have to consult the man who knew better than anyone else how it feels to seek after everything and obtain it. Solomon. As homework, read the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. It begins with this verse, actually near the beginning. This is verse 3 of chapter 2. He says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. That's a fancy way of saying, I explored the limits of how much I could pleasure myself. And then he ends that chapter this way. For to a person who is good in the Lord's sight, the Lord has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. That too is vanity and striving after wind. God does believe in the redistribution of wealth. And he is appointed for the person who is good to have spiritual wisdom, to have knowledge and joy, things you can't buy. But to the sinner, the Lord has appointed the task of working to gather the material of the world so that ultimately that wealth that he has collected will find its way to the righteous according to God's sight. Therefore, when a believer tries to gain wealth by imitating the sinner's methods, you circumvent God's purposes. You violate the spirit of the Eighth Commandment. You take something that is not appointed for you in the sense that you are working outside God's will in that respect. You risk letting greed drive you into schemes and things that put our faith at risk. And of course, a month of Sundays could follow on a discussion of greed. We won't do that. Verse 16, the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In strict legal terms, this commandment instructs Israel not to testify falsely, not to perjure in a matter of justice as a witness in a courtroom. That's its literal meaning. But in broad terms, the law was commanding truth-telling in all situations. In fact, in Leviticus 19.11, which is later in the law, of course, it's plainly stated no one should lie to another. 
Furthermore, the law also precludes things like slandering. So it's understood that this law is speaking specifically about perjury in a trial. But by what we know comes later in the law, we can see that it has a broad intent as well. Now, at the root of this commandment is the preservation of truth. That's its intent at its root, to keep truth pure. All that is true comes from the Lord, while all that is false comes from the enemy. For example, when you and I lie about even a very little thing, we are showing evidence of sin inside us, and that sin originated with Adam, and his sin was made possible by a lie that Satan told to the woman in the garden. So in effect, our lies are an ever-present reminder that sin began with a lie, and the effect of that first lie is still playing out in our bodies today by us repeating the very thing the enemy did to start the whole process, a lie. So this commandment endeavors to promote truth and to diminish lies in the people of Israel. Now, in the law of Christ, here again, the law is represented, but also expanded beyond lying and false witness, things which are specifically prohibited in the New Testament. There's also a long list of other sins of speech that are closely related. For example, flattering speech. You break the ninth commandment in spirit when you say things to someone you don't honestly mean about them. Gossip, slander, deceit, abusive speech, arrogant speech. These are all captured at one place or another in the New Testament as a prohibition to the New Testament believer and as an extension of the Ninth Commandment. How do those other forms of speech relate to lying? Well, lying is simply promoting something that's false, something that's not from God. Well, all of those other forms of speech are falsehoods in some manner. Gossip is taking an unhealthy interest in another situation and discussing it without their consent, and often with exaggerations or missing information or lack of truth. Slander is fictitious accusation. Abusive speech is speaking in such a way as to cause harm, which is not truthful speech, etc. Now, the Christian is called to guard the tongue and to season our speech and to make sure that everything we say is edifying. The standard is not merely don't say the wrong thing, which is how the ninth commandment is expressed. No, the standard and the test for love in a New Testament saint is to endeavor to always say an edifying thing. Finally, the tenth commandment, and we'll spend a few minutes on this. Exodus 20:17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, this is an interesting commandment because this is the first commandment in which it is prohibiting not an action, but an attitude, a thought. It can be defined as wanting something that we can't or shouldn't have. And in some cases, wanting more of something we already have enough of. Now, in the law, the Lord lists six specific examples of coveting, and then he adds the seventh general prohibition. And since he includes that general statement at the end, that tells us that the first six were not the extent of the law, the limit of the law. They're examples. They're representative of the kinds of things men might covet, especially in that day. In fact, if you look at the list, they happen to represent the six most valuable items anyone in Moses' day would typically have possessed. They are listed in descending order of value according to man's standards, not God's. A man's desire corresponds to the perceived value of things. I want something that's of more value than something that is of less value. All of these things are representative of wealth, power, status, and well-being. So coveting is particularly dangerous as a sin 
because it can be experienced inwardly, though never necessarily expressed outwardly. And that goes to what I said earlier, that it's a thought. Men secretly or not so secretly desire what other men have. Coveting is an attitude, not an action, as I said. But it can lead to sinful actions. Coveting can lead to jealousy. Coveting can lead to lying. Coveting can lead to stealing or to murder or to a host of other sinful behaviors. And for this reason, the Lord prohibited even our desire for these other things. In fact, some scholars have noted that this commandment is the basis for all the sins that come before it. That it is essentially the starting point for everything else you see on the list. You start with this and you end up at some of the others. There is a difference, however, between wanting something and coveting. A newly married couple can want for a child, while a childless couple can covet another's newborn baby. A hardworking employee can want for a promotion, while his colleague covets his boss's position. One man can have a desire for a woman, while another can covet his roommate's girlfriend. A child can want a special toy for his birthday, while another can covet his brother's new bike. The point is that coveting isn't defined by the item in question or even the extent of our desire. Coveting is wanting for things that already belong to another and have not been appointed for us by God. Wanting becomes coveting when our desires turn from things that might become ours to things that shouldn't become ours. It begins with an understanding of who owns all things again. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So everything, as we said already, exists as the property of the Lord and not merely the natural things. We're not just saying all oh, the rocks, the trees, the mountains, that you know, he made all that, it's all God's. No, everything in the world, because everything comes from that. Even the things that man's hands made find their origins in things God created. So he is the creator and so all created things traced to him. He is the owner of all things. Furthermore, the Lord designated a portion of creation to each man according to his will. First Samuel 2, 7, the scripture says, The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. Proverbs 22, 2, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Now this is not intended to diminish our compassion for those who have need. But it is to remind us that not everyone will be rich. Not everyone is intended to be rich. Not everyone can have everything they want. And that where we are in our station of life is appointed by God. And if he chooses to appoint us to a better station later, so be it. But there's no guarantee in that. And for men like Joseph, it often takes a pretty circuitous route. So the point in this is that God is the owner and therefore God is the assigner of what we have. That truth was especially evident in the life of Israel. In Deuteronomy 32.7, we read this. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of sons in Israel. So Moses explains that the Lord had given to each tribe and each person within each tribe of Israel some allotted portionment of the inheritance that he had designated. And therefore, God's will is reflected in that allotment. As one might look to another and say, how come he got that piece of land and I ended up with this lousy piece of land? In that thought is a covetous sin that assumes that we have 
rights to something over another rather than to trust what God has appointed. This is how it is supposed to be. So coveting wasn't merely a sin because it led to a sinful thought or a sinful action against people. It's a sin because it indicts God's goodness and his wisdom. It challenges his will. It suggests we know better than he does what should be ours. It repeats the sin of Adam. It represents the sin of Adam when he chose to eat the fruit that God said was not appointed for him. Just as lying repeats the sin of Satan and coveting repeats the sin of woman when she looked upon the tree. So how does the New Testament challenge Christians to follow this command? Well, first, New Testament writers frequently call Christians to contentment. There's a word you don't hear as much anymore. Contentment. Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Look at that quote. The writer says, be content with what you have because the Lord said he'll always be with you. How does that explain the need for contentment? He doesn't say because the Lord will always give you what you want. He says because the Lord will always be with you. That's reason to be content with what you have. Because if the Lord is always with us, then we can safely assume he is fully aware of our circumstances and of our needs. And if he is fully aware of all that, then in light of that knowledge, he's made some manner of a provision for us, right? And if he knows our needs and our situation and has chosen to give us what we have, then we should then understand that provision is his decision and we shouldn't challenge it. Coveting is usually about having something that is already someone else's, but having more of something beyond what you need. So hoarders, to make a simple example, you don't become a hoarder without coveting. You can't. Because by definition, once I have three stacks of newspapers, I probably don't need a fourth. But if I've decided I need a fourth, I've had to covet for that. I've had the desire for it. And then I've had to follow up on that desire. Or poodles. You never want to have too many poodles. The optimal number is zero. Secondly, the law of Christ commands us to recognize that the Lord controls our possessions. And so when we have a want, when we have a desire, we seek the Lord for it. That's something that the New Testament introduces that was not implicitly stated as part of the Old Covenant. To avoid coveting, we seek the Lord for what we want. James addresses this problem in particular in his letter in James 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, he asks? Is it not the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James points out that our desires cross the line and become sinful when they are driven by the lusts of the flesh. That's one of the keys that we can use to determine is this good or not. What's driving the motivation? The lusts of the flesh or a true sincere desire to seek God and to want for something he's placed in our heart. A failure to seek God for the things he might provide and to do it in a different way, he equates with cheating on God. 
So if you and I may not be perceptive enough in all cases to know, is this a desire of the flesh or not? Watch what behaviors it triggers. Murder, envy, quarrels. Those are all the results of a desire that's centered in the flesh. Do you sneak around behind someone's back to buy something you shouldn't buy? Do you have to lie to get it? Do you have to cheat to get it? Do you have to fight to get it? All of a sudden, you're doing things you wouldn't do normally. You can pretty much guarantee at that point that you have a lustful desire driving these other sins. You're in the covetous cycle. Got to break it. If the spirit is leading us to a desire, what would be the natural spirit led response to a desire that the spirit is giving us? Prayer and a seeking of the Lord to deliver the thing we desire. By that prayer, we are acknowledging all good things come from him, just as James teaches elsewhere in his letter. And we are asking, knowing that the Lord will grant it if it is the right thing for us and we'll be content. So the Christian's call under the law of Christ isn't merely not to covet something we shouldn't have. It includes a command to ask the Lord for everything you want and then to trust in what comes next. It isn't just a matter of guarding against wanting the wrong thing in the wrong way. It's a command to be content to recognize the Lord provides us what he chooses and therefore to seek him for whatever we want and trust in what follows. The annals of Christian faith, by the way, are filled with men who sought God for their need and then waited to see what God would do in response. So I think Jesus, again, sets the best example. Do you know Jesus says he had nowhere to lay his head? He was literally homeless. Think about that. Three years living in that world, he had no home. There's no point anywhere in the records of the gospel where you ever see Jesus going to someplace he calls home. He's literally on the road for three years, never with an income, never with a place to call home, never with any consistent benefactors, no possessions that we can tell. He only had what he had on his body. And yet for three years, he lived just fine. Now, he was Jesus. He could make loaves and fishes, you know, like this. But even in that, he's demonstrating what faith looks like in its supreme form. He's content to say, I own everything. So when he was asked to pay tax one time, this is what he did. Matthew 17, 27. He says, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, speaking to a disciple, throw in a hook, take out the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take it and give them to him. The point is, Jesus acted as if he owned nothing because he owned everything. That's not some kind of jiu-jitsu Orwellian wordplay. Literally, if you act as if you own nothing, you truly own everything. Because what you're saying is, I don't need to pick a piece of it and do this with it and then sort of protect it. We have access to everything as he appoints it. Now, I can't walk into Brian's house and just eat something out of his refrigerator without asking him first, although I've tried several times. <laughs> we go a different route, right? We seek the Lord and we ask him to provide that for us in some direct way. But we are called to live without an undue interest in others' goods and without the distraction of lustful desires which lead to greater sin. Perhaps this is best summed up in Proverbs to end tonight. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. And this is his reason. That I not be full and deny you saying, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of the Lord. Not too much, not too little. Contentment. Heavenly Father, we do ask you that you would let grace reign in our hearts and our memories as all we've learned here, Father, would, would prompt us to love one another more so and accept each other in the grace that we've all been given. 
that yet at the same time, we would flee sin and we would have a heartfelt desire to obey and not to repeat sins of the past. And that we would also be capable of teaching truth in love so that others who may be considering some of these things would reconsider if, if perhaps they are about to make the same mistake. But in all things, Father, we know you have authority and are sovereign and are working good in our lives. We trust in that. We trust that all that we learn can be useful to you in causing us to become more Christ-like. Give us the strength by the Spirit to obey what we've learned. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.